0: Chapter 7, Creating Gracious Space Fred Rogers, an innovator in children's television, was among the first people to recognize television as a potentially powerful medium for education. He explained, I went into television because I hated it so, and I thought there was some way of using this fabulous instrument to be of nurture to those who would watch and listen. His vision was to create a television environment For children that would support their development as future community members, as well as allow them to regard themselves as inherently good and deserving of love, just by being who they were. Subsequently, he designed the show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was first broadcast on public television in his hometown of Pittsburgh in 1965, aired 895 episodes over 32 years, and won four Emmy Awards. Aware from studying child development that children find comfort in a familiar, predictable environment, Rogers opened every episode with the same song and scene, coming in the door and putting on his homie cardigan sweater and tennis shoes. As he sang the words of the opening song, Please won't you be my neighbor? He modeled the natural curiosity of children, asking questions of guests on the program from a child's perspective, thus honoring and validating the way children see the world and learn. The book, The World According to Mr. Rogers, a collection of Rogers' writings published posthumously in 2003, sheds light on the principles Rogers not only taught on the show, but lived by. Be yourself, engage the world with understanding, love, and remember that we are all neighbors. Among these, perhaps, Rogers' greatest influence was his consistent willingness to be his authentic self. Whether talking to his television audience, one-on-one with a child, appearing on The Johnny Carson Show, testifying before Congress, or mowing his lawn in his own Pittsburgh neighborhood, he was always his same soft-spoken, gentle person. Because he was able to connect intimately with his viewers due to the program's supportive environment, He could present complex and controversial issues such as divorce, war, and racial conflict with an honesty that other television programs avoided. Fred Rogers is a leader who exemplifies the creation of gracious space in an environment supporting the common good of children. The principles he embodied and taught apply also to creating gracious space for adults. Gracious space is a safe and constructive setting in which people can do the difficult transformative work necessary to advance the common good. When people hear the word gracious, they usually think of kindness, courtesy, and skillfulness at interaction. Yet, gracious space is not just a feel-good place where people are asked to lose their edge and be polite. Rather, it is a place where everyone is invited to fully engage in the work of social change for the common good. As leaders share their visions with the world, meeting with trusted confidence and colleagues, as well as diverse people who might resist them, the nature of the environment in which these interactions take place become important. An environment is the sum of all of the conscious and unconscious choices that inform the social, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and moral climate of a community or organization. The nature of an environment can either limit Or liberate the potential of any group, vision or interaction between proponents and the critics of the vision for the common good. Consequently, one of the most powerful things a leader for the common good can do is to ask, is the existing environment the one we need to make progress toward the common good? Such an environment, one that welcomes all and actively advances justice and care for all, can be seen as a gracious space. Gracious space is a practical training ground For advancement of the common good. It also offers participants a foretaste of the common good as a global reality. For people within a gracious space, the common good worldview becomes a tangible experience. They begin to regard the group like a family, and the group is naturally inclined to share the rock out of a sense of affiliation. Since gracious space supports the common good worldview, in gracious space, the common good ethic takes precedence over the us-them ethic. The group is thus challenged to improve its group dynamics, including the ability to deal with conflict within the group. The idea that conflict holds potential for transformation sounds counterintuitive, if not radical to most people. Yet, this is only because the concept is outside the realm of the culture's dominant us-them thinking. Most of us are unschooled in dealing with conflict in ways that prompt healthy discussions and fruitful results. Instead, people try to suppress differences by maintaining a surface politeness, or they default into old us-them behaviors that promote dissension and impasse. But when conflict is handled well, it becomes a doorway to desirable and creative insights for change. In fact, conflict is a normal even healthy outgrowth of bringing diverse points of view together. One of the fundamental assumptions concerning healthy conflict in a group is that no single person, not even the leader, can understand the issue under consideration in its entirety. Rather, each person's point of view has value and must be considered. This perspective is illustrated by a tradition among the Sioux. When they came together to discuss an important matter, an elder places a Y-shaped tree branch in a clay pot so that it is standing vertically at the center of the meeting room. Chairs are arranged in a circle surrounding the branch. The elder divides the people into four groups, inviting each to enter the circle from one of the four cardinal directions and be seated. The elder then instructs a representative from each group to describe in detail what he sees. It is noted that that each person sees the branch from only one point of view, and to understand the whole must depend on others. Another fundamental principle of healthy conflict concerns each person's responsibility to check his intention before speaking. When a speaker is about to bring up a contentious point or pose a hard question, if his intention is to do harm, it is as if he is reaching into his pocket and grabbing a rock to throw at someone else's idea. With a shift of intention, however the same point can be offered as a gift. The key is to remember to ask, am I bringing a rock or bringing a gift? If you're about to toss a rock, it is wise to put that thought back into your pocket and wait until you can offer a gift instead. Gracious space is intended not as something a group engages in only once, but as an environment in which the group works. As time progresses, a group's capacity to maintain gracious space will be tested. Inevitably, someone in the group will disappoint someone else or manipulate the group's trust for their personal interest or talk behind someone's back. This is not because the group includes some bad apples. It is simply the reality of most human communities. The question is, when such things happen, how will the group members then treat each other If the group has the capacity to recreate gracious space after disappointing or hurting each other, then their practice of gracious space will have borne fruit, and they will be able to regard themselves as a learning community committed to the common good. The leader's role in gracious space. The practice of gracious space, like the practice of embracing the wisdom of the margins, asks the leader to pay attention to the territory in which people meet. In the margins, the focus is on establishing connection with those who have historically been excluded from mainstream society so that their wisdom can be brought to bear on the solutions set forth to advance a more just society. In gracious space, the focus is on how to help people with diverse perspectives interact in such a way that they advance the common good. The leader fosters the development of gracious space in a group by first cultivating the spirit in his own life. As the qualities of gracious space inform his presence, words, and actions, he begins to embody it. Then, when he comes into a gathering of people, he models gracious space for them and invites the group to co-create it for one another. Creating gracious space with oneself. Gracious space begins in the heart of the leader as a spirit that welcomes all, recognizes the worth of all, and engages creatively with all to co-create a future for the good of all. Leaders cultivate the spirit by offering gracious space to themselves. This means acknowledging and accepting all parts of themselves just the way they are, with their aptitudes and their inadequacies. By accepting both our gifts and our flaws, and coming to peace with our imperfect selves, we can welcome the same in others. Practicing inclusiveness with ourselves constitutes the inner work of leadership development. It allows leaders to bring their unpretentious, authentic selves to the work of leadership for the common good. For example, at the beginning of each day, Fred Rogers created for himself the environment he would later create for others on television. He began the day with two hours of prayer and reading before sunrise. Then he went for a morning swim and had breakfast. By 8.30 a.m., he was ready to give the world the same care and respect he had given to himself. Rogers embodied gracious space so effectively that his spirit pervaded into all his interactions. Whether with groups or one-on-one, in his book, I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers, Tim Madigan recounts dozens of examples of gracious space made manifest through Rogers' presence, choices, and actions. Madigan reports that Rogers had an attitude of inclusiveness reflected in his interest in everyone. During the very difficult days when Tim's brother, Steve, was dying of cancer, Rogers not only consoled Tim, but reached out directly to Steve as well. Although Rogers had never met Steve, he phoned the family home and listened deeply for 30 minutes, while Steve talked about how he had come to peace with his impending death. To become effective leaders for the common good, we need to give ourselves a good measure of gracious space every day. By doing such things as calling a friend who cares for us unconditionally, going for a walk in nature, meditating, or finding other ways to connect with spirit. When we are experiencing stress in our lives, it becomes even more important to create gracious space for maintaining the balance necessary to act as effective leaders. Embodying gracious space in the group. Having benefited from creating gracious space for themselves, leaders begin to embody its spirit. Embodying gracious space happens over time, yet each time leaders receive this gift, they become more like the gift. The spirit of gracious space that a leader embodies can permeate a group of people the way candlelight subtly illuminates a room. When gracious space is evident in the leader's presence, people sense it as an invitation to awaken the same spirit in their own hearts. As members of a group awaken this spirit, it influences how they interact with one another, shaping the group's environment. The following stories illustrate how a leader for the common good can influence a group by modeling the spirit of gracious space. Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, a group dedicated to bringing dignity, care, and justice to the poor, was in her office meeting with a homeless woman when her secretary came to the door and said, "'Excuse me, but you have an important phone call.' Dorothy responded immediately, asking, "'Which one of us is it for?' She did not feign respect for the homeless and poor, but really saw them as fellow human beings. By embodying the spirit of gracious face with the poor, she helped launch the Catholic worker movement known for its respectful engagement with the poor. Walter Cronkite, a well-known broadcast journalist and an anchorman was in the CBS newsroom on November 22, 1963, when news arrived that President Kennedy had been shot. Immediately, he took on the role of breaking the tragic news to the nation, all the while embodying gracious space. Although his was already a trusted voice, his stature grew even more as he held the space for collective grief. His surprise when first announcing that the president had been shot, his grief as he confirmed Kennedy's death, and the calm reassurance in his voice as he narrated events on the next few days showed the nation a way forward. Gracious space, held internally, allows a leader to remain centered even during high-stakes, high-pressure events, anchored in the spirit of gracious space. The leader can then make the same gracious spirit available to others. Inviting the group to co-create gracious space. When inviting a group to co-create gracious space, the leader models practices that support it. She also calls the group's attention to a vision that advances the common good or other work before the group and encourages them to create the environment needed to accomplish it. Once a group sees the work at hand, they generally want to start right in. The leader then draws their attention to the matter of the environment with a question such as, what sort of space is needed for this work, and how can we co-create it? The leader cannot give a group gracious space She can only inspire, embody, and invite it through her presence and the quality of her interactions, inviting the group to co-create gracious space. When inviting a group to co-create gracious space, the leader models practices that support it. She also calls the group's attention to a vision that advances the common good or other work before the group and encourages them to create the environment needed to accomplish it. Once a group sees the work at hand, they generally want to start right in. The leader then draws their attention to the matter of the environment with a question such as, what sort of space is needed for this work? And how can we co-create it? The leader cannot give a group gracious space. She can only inspire, embody, and invite it through her presence and the quality of her interactions. Seeding the group with the spirit of an environment, marked by honesty, intent, listening, and respectful responses to conflict. Ultimately, the group members just choose to join in its co-creation. This is illustrated by the actions of Jeff, a clinical psychologist who is gifted at working with recalcitrant youth. He was conducting a weekend workshop for a group of 30 such students in the Seattle School District. As the retreat began, the students were engaged in their own ruckus interactions. Ignoring him and refusing to cooperate. Jeff then brought out a bag of cookies and put it on the table next to him. The teenagers began to notice the cookies, and someone shouted, Give them to me! I'll eat them! Eventually, the group began to quiet down to hear what Jeff's soft voice, under the ruckus, was saying. Any ideas on how to distribute these? Any method is fine with me as long as everyone gets the same number of cookies. The group started brainstorming and finally came up with a plan that worked. As the young people ate their cookies, Jeff asked them a question. How do you want me to lead the rest of the retreat? If you'd like me to be a policeman, you can act one way. If you'd like me to be a parent, you can act another. If you'd like me to be a friend, I'll adjust to that. Jeff's actions, which initiated the co-creation of Gracious Space, resulted in a change of attitude. And behavior among the group. Jeff had let the students know that he saw them as powerful and had invited them to link their intentions with his. With the simple exercise of determining how to distribute the cookies, the students discovered that they could influence the group's future through their choices. Practices for Creating Gracious Space Because gracious space is a foretaste of a common good worldview, The practices that create gracious space in a group are also the practices humanity needs to develop to shape a society based on the common good. Since they challenge the us-them assumptions that undergrid our usual interactions with each other, the following practices involve taking some risk, which make us feel vulnerable. Yet working with them can have a significant practical benefit in the present while giving us an opportunity to participate in the shift to a new worldview. Welcoming the stranger. Gracious space is designed to facilitate one of the truths about the common good that the wisdom needed to face the challenges of the day is scattered in bits and pieces among group or community members. If that wisdom is to be secured, the group or community must be open to all contributions, even the odd, annoying, or surprising ones. Consequently, creating gracious space means welcoming the stranger into the conversation. A stranger need not be the only person we do not know. A stranger can also be a person we know whose point of view is unfamiliar or whose style or presence we find uncomfortable or annoying. I learned what it means to welcome a stranger from the residence of a small town in Italy. My wife, Sandy, and I, in celebration of our 25th wedding anniversary, took a trip to Europe. Among our favorite spots was Vernanza, one of the five villages comprising the Cinque Terre along Italy's west coast. Our first evening in Vernanza, there was a power outage, which ended up lasting two days, affecting all of France and most of Italy. Being modern, ATM-dependent travelers, most of the tourists in Vernanza had little cash on hands, and without power, the ATMs were useless sandy and i wondered how the situation would be managed soon word was on the streets that if we wanted to buy a meal or make a purchase we just had to sign our names with a waiter or salesperson and we would all settle our bills when the atm machines came back on sandy and i shifted from feeling like foreigners to feeling like trusted neighbors literally overnight merchants and restaurant owners smiled knowingly as we entered their establishments a reminder that the only way to deal with the situation was to get closer. This experience gave me a visceral sense of how quickly individuals can make the transition from stranger to fellow community member. Yet people are also inclined to keep others in the position of strangers. When we estrange someone, it is as if we put our, out our arms, like traffic policemen, and say, stop, you're not welcome here. We put up such nonverbal stop signs for individuals in our neighborhoods, colleagues at work, and people we encounter in public places. We often do this so politely that the other person doesn't realize we have shut the door. This is one reason constructive conversations with diverse people on complex issues are rare. As soon as someone voices a conflicting point of view, we stop listening. To cultivate a gracious space, we need to recognize who we are distancing and why. For instance, a person might be surprised to discover that he puts up nonverbal stop signs more often with particular types of people, with the politically progressive or recent immigrants or conservative-looking businessmen or people who are overweight. Once we see the pattern, we can choose other behaviors. For me, the subtle sensation of putting up a stop sign has become a friendly reminder to ask myself, What is it about this person, her beliefs, her presence, her energy, that makes me want to distance myself from her? Once I become aware of the reasons for my behavior, I can consciously put aside that defense mechanism and welcome the person into my sphere. Welcoming the stranger is not only a decent thing to do, but also a smart thing to do. Someone who thinks differently may be the one to offer the very insight an individual or group needs to accomplish a goal. In her book, Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin reveals how Abraham Lincoln knew that to find a path forward for a nation requiring healing and unity, he needed to gather a team of rivals in his cabinet. He wanted to be exposed to a broad spectrum of opinions expressed for a common purpose, to preserve an 87-year-old experiment in democracy. The role of the leader is to model the welcoming of diverse people and perspectives. He does this not only with his words, but also through his behavior. It is one thing to say the stranger is welcome, but it is another to openly and patiently engage people who are asking difficult questions about our vision or challenging our point of view. Us, them instincts surface, making it easy to move into a defensive or aggressive posture to protect our interests. Even so, every effort the leader makes to include a stranger encourages others to develop the same habit. Showing Curiosity Another practice for cultivating gracious space is curiosity. When people are developing an idea or a project in a group, they can easily fall into a competitive posture. They listen not so much to gain information, but for ammunition with which to shoot down others' ideas or they listen only partially because they are already forming their response to the point they think the speaker is going to make. In such an environment, conversations devolve to a series of assertions about what people already believe. One of the best ways to get beyond ineffective us-them point-counterpoint exchanges is to practice curiosity. In my seminars, when it's time to talk about curiosity, before I say a word, I walk around the room shaking a brown paper bag. The rattling sound heard as I shake the bag lets people know there is something inside it. A few guess out loud what's in the bag. Eventually, somebody asks me to show them what's inside. When I turn the bag upside down and out rolls a marking pen and maybe a roll of masking tape, people are amused and perplexed. Then I say, do you know why I did that? It had nothing to do with what was in the bag. It had everything to do with you. You become so much more present, awake, and curious. And I was only holding up a bag. What keeps us from being this curious when someone in the group is holding up an idea, a point of view, or a dream? If people listened with wide open curiosity, we might find ourselves exploring aspects of a question or vision we would otherwise dismiss. We might hear more people saying, That's an interesting idea tell me more, especially why it is important to you. We would listen more keenly for the thread of thought or that half-formed idea in somebody's mind that just might be the key to a better future. Curiosity can be surprisingly disarming in group dynamics, even when people say something outrageous or frustrating. For example, one of my favorite supervisors was curious by nature and very centered. I can recall a variety of occasions when a member of our team expressed frustration or opposition during a meeting, and he would often respond with a simple comment such as, wow, you've got a lot of energy around this issue. Can you tell me what you're concerned about? Often this was sufficient to turn the conversation in a fruitful direction. The person expressing frustration or opposition was provided gracious space to vent and then get back in touch with her own principled perspectives. If curiosity can prompt so dramatic a shift in conversation, imagine how much good it could do at a volatile community meeting or the negotiating table of an internal national organization. When group members, in both casual and intense moments, observe the leader practicing curiosity, they become more likely to show curiosity in interactions with one another. The environment of the group then shifts to one of gracious space. As the level of curiosity in the group increases, people take more risks with one another, knowing their ideas and visions, once expressed, will be met with curiosity in gracious space. In this way, difficult questions can be better explored and resolved, paving a path toward the common good. Building trust. Another practice for cultivating gracious space is building trust, a basic aspect of community everywhere. Trust allows us to create and depend on the covenants or public promises that are essential for community to flourish. When trust is present, all parties can assume that the others have their best interest at heart. Without trust, all they have is fear. Trust within a group is built through action in particular actions that require risk-taking. When I think of venturing into trust, I reflect on Baylor, a boy four years old at the time his family attended my church. One Sunday during the after-service gathering in the fellowship hall, Baylor decided he wanted to fly, and he asked me to help. He climbed up onto a long folding table and crept to the edge, looking at me with anxious eyes and an eager grin. I extended my arms toward him, and he jumped, trusting that I would catch him. That was so much fun. He decided to take a bigger risk. He climbed onto the table again, but this time he started at the far end, running the tables full length and then soaring into the air and into my waiting arms. He had taken a risk, and his trust had grown. In a group, someone, Usually, the leader must be willing to take the first, often strategic, risk to move the group toward increased trust, choosing to be vulnerable and seeing how the group responds. And if others in the group recognize and honor the risk taking and respond in kind, then trust is likely to grow. This dynamic is illustrated by the following anecdote Dale Nienau, a former coworker of mine was participating in a multicultural and intergenerational gathering celebrating the importance of grassroots leadership. The facilitator asked group members to introduce themselves by sharing their name and something that was weighing heavily on their minds or hearts. The first participants mentioned things that were fairly safe and superficial. But Dale made a decision to take a risk by revealing something more personal and profound the fact that the previous week, his wife had been diagnosed with breast cancer. As introductions continued around the table, others followed his lead. Even though he was not the facilitator, his actions served as the display of leadership, resulting in a new openness and level of trust in the group. Such risk-taking can create a foundation for building trust within a group. Once trust becomes part of the environment, the group feels capable of taking on the tough yet essential issues usually ignored. Topics such as economic, racial, and social justice or environmental stewardship can be raised because trust opens the doors to more candid conversations. Learning in public. Another practice for cultivating gracious space is learning in public. When people in a group feel safe enough to learn from one another, to have an aha moment and let their minds be changed in front of their peers. Gracious space is created, and the group can progress towards its goal. We might presume that learning in public happens all the time, since adults go to school, attend seminars, and participate in community meetings. On the contrary, the norm is resistance to learning in public, caused by people's insecurities about how others might perceive them my friend, Bill Koenig, who teaches organization, change, and development, is fond of saying, you can look good or you can learn in public. You just can't do both at the same time. The classic example of learning in public is children in a park, who feel free to express natural curiosity about their surroundings. They run everywhere, picking up leaves, stones, perhaps stray bits of paper to look at, smell, and maybe even taste. They are learning machines. Not knowing is unimportant to them, and they are unconcerned about looking good in the presence of others. But while growing up, people get the message that as an adult, it's not okay to not look good, and there's, therefore, it's not okay to not know. This kills creative conversation and problem solving. Someone might share a wonderful breakthrough idea, but rather than group members saying, wow, that's a great concept, I have never heard that before, tell us more, people nod their heads as if they were already familiar with the idea. Then the idea dies quietly, and the status quo remains firmly entrenched. Learning in public requires people to care less about how they look and more about discovering what might really work. That inquisitive child's mind is still alive in all of us. We just need to get the self-consciousness of the adult's mind out of the way. When people are open to what is new, they are more likely to question assumptions. For example, during a school board meeting, a district superintendent, hoping to inspire a discussion about dramatically reforming the school year calendar, might decide to question what everyone takes for granted, asking, What was the original rationale for starting the school year in September? Once the group is reminded that the existing model for public education was developed in an agricultural society when the students were needed on the farms during summer, they are freer to think outside the box. The leader might then propose a more challenging follow-up question. How would our models for schools be transformed if we replaced the agrarian model with a model for global information society. Leadership in this complex global century is not about having the final, definitive answer. It is about having transformative questions that could advance the common good and not being afraid to ask them at the right time and in the right setting. One of the most powerful things a leader can do to promote learning in public is to set aside the demeanor of being an expert and have the courage to say, I don't know. This gives everyone permission to let out their inquisitive three-year-old. When not knowing is okay, people are more likely to replace point-counterpoint debate with creative dialogue. A debate assumes that one side knows the truth and must persuade the other side to join their way of thinking. Dialogue assumes the truth is yet to be discovered and that it is found through listening to all viewpoints. Being your authentic self Perhaps the simplest practice that fosters gracious space is to be our authentic selves. Authenticity is the net result of discovering who we truly are and having the courage to be just that. As simple as this may sound, it it is also enormously challenging. Yet once individuals cultivate this way of being, it sounds out a vibration of unpretentious ease that registers with others. By contrast, individuals are inauthentic if the way they present themselves is at odds with their core identity. If people pretend to be something they are not or speak with insincerity, their inauthenticity is usually sensed by observers or listeners. People are naturally attracted to authenticity and turned off by inauthenticity. When we opt to be our authentic selves, we are choosing to be human a word that shares the same root as the word humility. It is important to realize that humility is not self-deprecation, but the natural result of no longer pretending that perfection is an option. Peace comes from eliminating pretense and simply being ourselves. When leaders dare to be their authentic selves, they claim personal power. Fred Rogers demonstrated the power of authenticity in the context of leadership not only on his television show, but in all contexts, including during his testimony before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Communications in 1969. At the time, Congress was considering reducing by half the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's request for $20 million of national funding. Senator John Pastor of Rhode Island, known as a straightforward, no-nonsense man who did not abide fools, opened the testimony somewhat crassly, saying, All right, Rogers, you've got the floor. Rogers unflinchingly began speaking in the same gentle, steady-paced, sing-song voice that could be heard on his television show. His authentic voice. He referred to his philosophical statement he had given the center and said he trusted that the senator would read it as he had promised. That. One of the first things a child learns in a healthy family is trust. The senator asked in a sarcastic tone, Will it make you happy if I read it? Rogers responded, his pace and tone unchanged by the senator's sarcasm. I'd just like to talk about it if it's all right. He spoke briefly about the history of his program, commenting, I'm very much concerned, as I know you are, about what's being delivered to our children in this country. He went on to say that children don't need to be watching cartoons, which he described as animated bombardment. The inner drama of growing up as a child is drama enough, he explained. During that first minute and a half of Rogers's presentation, the senator set aside his gruffness and became genuinely curious. Rogers continued, speaking about the importance of letting each child know that she is unique and the value of conveying that Feelings are mentionable and manageable for both the children's and the nation's mental health. Pastor, now completely engaged, interjected, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps in the last two days. Rogers, as unruffled by the praise as by the sarcasm, then asked the senator if he could share a song with him. The senator said yes. Sitting in Congress at a time when America was entrenched in the Vietnam War, Rogers spoke the words to the song, What do you do with the mad that you feel? Which ends with the lines, I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, I can stop, 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 anytime. And what a good feeling to feel like this, and know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady, and a boy can be someday a man. Senator Pastor immediately replied, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Looks like you just earned that $20 million. In less than seven minutes, the power of Rogers' authenticity had won over the crusty senator and garnered the funding for public television. When a leader for the common good asks the question, am I in the third circle? In relation to the practice of gracious space, the question can become an invitation to remain true to his authentic self as he interacts with others. In addition, the question can remind the leader of the importance of inclusiveness. Am I daring enough to trust the power of gracious space in working for the common good, setting aside any doubts about its apparent softness, Am I ready to welcome the stranger? Am I as interested in other people's point of view as I am in my own? Can I welcome conflict and help the group move through it until it bears constructive fruit? As a leader puts these practices to work, they become contagious. Group members begin to use them too, generating gracious space, the essential environment for co-creating the common good. Exercises. Gracious space, self-assessment. The following behaviors support the co-creation of gracious space. Circle those in which you feel competent. Put a star by those you could develop further. Then discuss with others or do some journaling about your strengths and what you would like to improve with respect to creating gracious space. Establishing norms. Interjecting, humor, fun. Affirming others. Being open to feedback. Accepting of different perspectives and ideas. Innovating new approaches. Being present. Being aware of my impact on others. Assuming others' best intentions. Being intentional. Being reliable. Trusting others. Being comfortable not knowing. Detaching from outcomes, being collaborative, being trustworthy, being willing to change your mind, being willing to slow down, reflecting on assumptions, actively seeks others opinions, being curious, asking open-ended questions, discerning patterns emerging from a group discussions, Learning and sharing rather than just advocating. Listening deeply. Agreeing to be influenced. Being comfortable receiving lots of questions. Being capable of stopping, reassessing, and redirecting. Reflection questions. What is the current environment like in your group, community, or organization? Is it the kind of environment needed to advance your vision or other vital work of the group? What can you do to create gracious space for yourself each day? What kind of people do you tend to distance yourself from, and how can you change your behavior to welcome them instead? What behaviors can you model to increase curiosity, risk-taking, and learning in public with your group, community, or organization? What can you do to discover and act as your authentic self?